I'm Evan. And I'm Hannah. We're working together to make a sequel to our first role-playing game, Questlandia, and we're documenting that process in real time. We're gearing up for the Kickstarter for Questlandia 2, so we want to talk about what that's like. Last week, we asked you all what you want to know about running a Kickstarter, either as a creator or a backer. We got some great questions. There's a lot to cover, so we're breaking this episode into two parts. This part will have our general thoughts about your questions, and the second will be a detailed rundown of our Questlandia 2 Kickstarter prep. Let's get started. So let's start by going over Kickstarter as a platform. Like, what is Kickstarter? Yeah, so I think probably most people who are listening know what Kickstarter is. Uh, But Kickstarter, as advertised, is a platform for uh, bringing your creative ideas to life. People can give money to a project that you're running for any reason, but Kickstarter asks that you are offering some sort of tangible reward or experience in return, whether that's, you know, uh, people will get a copy of the album that you are fundraising for, or you will give a shout out in the end credits for your next stop motion animation. So we've used Kickstarter, I think, uh, five times now. Have we done five Kickstarter projects? We've done five of them. That's wild. So our first Kickstarter was in 2014, and that was our project kickstarting the first Questlandia. That was a fateful day. Yes, fateful indeed. Um, So that first Kickstarter, I think, made about $6,000 and maybe had something like 200 200 something backers. I'm not looking at the numbers right now, but I think that's around what it was. Yeah. Our most recent Kickstarter for our board game, Good Dog, Bad Zombie, was by far the biggest Kickstarter we've done. There were 2,000 something backers, and the project ended at $175,000. So, you know, I feel like we've sort of experienced this wide scope of what Kickstarter can be. Yeah. I guess there's experiences on the margins of either side of that. Like so far, we haven't had a project fail. Uh, That's true. Yeah. So far, we haven't made a million dollars. That's true. Yeah. So we have. I we're we're somewhere in the middle between yeah. zero and a million. <laughs> or <laughs> I I don't want to say zero and a million. We have not yet had a project not meet its funding goal. Uh, that doesn't mean there hasn't been hardships, though. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So Evan, I feel like within Kickstarter, there's actually like a lot of different philosophies, whether you're a backer or a creator about what Kickstarter means to you and like how you use it and what you think it is. I mean, Kickstarter says explicitly in their material that that Kickstarter isn't a store, but with Kickstarter's popularity and with, you know, like coffee makers and enamel pins and fidget cubes on Kickstarter. There's a lot of people who come to Kickstarter seeing it as a store. 
Um, and with creators, you know, for some creators, they come to Kickstarter and it's a way to basically like bring your finished thing to life. Like mm-hmm. I have made this entire role-playing game. It exists in a Google doc, but it's a 300 page Google doc and I've run it at conventions hundreds of times. It's done. I just need the, you know, the capital to like print the physical books and other people are like, I have this cool idea for a role-playing game. I haven't really done a lot of work on it. Like, here's the idea. Uh, help me take the next steps. So I'm curious, you know, for you, like what Kickstarter is and what some of your own, uh, what your relationship is to Kickstarter. Well, I have a lot of relationships to different aspects of it. To to talk to what you just mentioned, that tension between starting from an idea and making it real versus having a basically finished product that you're taking pre-orders for. Uh, I think that's a very real tension when you're setting up a project because, you know, what you're doing is you're making a pitch, right? You're pitching your creation to investors. And the same rules apply, I think, which is just to be as convincing as possible. You want it to look as real and convincingly finished and representative of the final product as possible. It's interesting because like you use the word investors, which is not a word that I would use. And so even that word implies like a certain relationship to Kickstarter. You know, investors are people who have a stake, like an an ownership stake to some extent in what you're doing, which I guess I guess they do. And I mean, maybe this is where some of the tension comes in. So uh Um, you know, investor isn't the right word. But these are the people who are going to enjoy the thing that you make, you know, like they're directly experiencing what you're creating. And that's part of what makes Kickstarter good is that you are, you know, when you make any kind of media, you're trying to send a message and communicate in some way. And so you get to communicate directly to the people who are interested in experiencing your thing. And I like that. But that's also uh, a source of the difficulties because it's it makes it very raw to get tough feedback or to have issues with the people that you really want to just, you know, have enjoy your game. Yeah, it really does. Uh, I mean, you know, sort of like in the monster hearts or like apocalypse world style it opens you up to the psychic mouse maelstrom that's the the other main thought i have about kickstarter is that i think it's it is dangerous to creators like my experience with it is uh sort of tumbling down the rabbit hole of everything that needs to be done to run a Kickstarter, create a product, and ship it all out. And Kickstarter has this sort of outward appearance, to creators at least, that it's like, hey, you're, you've got a beautiful idea, you want to make your beautiful thing, come here and you'll get money to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it actually is, is it's the beginning of a business, right? Like, you can't just be a writer, or an artist, if you're going to do a successful Kickstarter. You need to be an advertiser, a marketer, an editor, a shipping fulfiller. 
You need to be a communications team. You need to count your stock and do your accounting. You know, you become a self-employed business owner, even if it's just you, if it's just a business of you, but you're, you're taking on a, a huge amount of work. And I think some creators just get pulverized by that. Yeah, Kickstarter, I mean, it really does offer uh, this, like it presents this juicy fruit of being able to bring the thing that means a lot to you to life. And then it uh, sometimes has this way of sort of taking that away from you. <laughs> it's like a little bit of a, you know, a cautionary tale, snake in the Garden of Eden type of fruit. If you are not prepared for what it takes to do all the pieces. Right. That's, you know, that's how it's different than taking your book to a publisher and hoping they'll publish it. Mm -hmm. Because if you do that, they'll put an editor on it. They'll market it. They'll get it into stores. You know, you can actually just be the writer and, you know, the secondary work of trying to get in touch with publishers in the first place. But Kickstarter is a lot more. And I just feel like educating both the creators and the backers of projects on how much is involved in delivering a Kickstarter and having some sympathy and understanding for how that can catch creators off guard would just help with the sort of mood and spirit of the whole thing. Yeah. So now that we've sort of given our cautionary tales, before we get <laughs> into people's questions, uh, what about like the flip side of this? Like what is, how has Kickstarter been great to us personally? I mean, the first thing I'd hold up is that we, uh, we've actually made some things. We've made five <laughs> things. Yeah. You know, I would say actually even more than five things if you count, and I'm staying positive here, uh, if you count the stretch goals and expansions and, you know, different sort of tentacle-y things that have spawned from each of these Kickstarters. You know, I'm willing to count them. Let's count them. I'm counting them. We've made a ton of things. A whole lot <laughs> of things. Uh, and Kickstarter uh, deserves a lot of credit for that, both in a way to make funding, but also a impetus to create a sort of plan of action of how to make it, to create a commitment to do so in a certain time frame, and to give hundreds of eyeballs on us watching to see if we <laughs> succeed or fail. Uh, hey, we're doing, these are the positive answers here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, for all of the, for all of the critiques that can be made of Kickstarter, either, you know, as its own business or as its platform or like as the platform that it is, it has like, I, I couldn't argue like it's changed our lives. And I feel like it has shaped gaming in a way that's really positive. Like, would gaming be as big as it is right now if it wasn't for Kickstarter? Like, I guess I can't say for sure because I don't live in the alternate reality where Kickstarter doesn't exist. But it just like, it really does feel to me like it's been at least partly responsible for this renaissance of games 
it's not just a renaissance. It's giving, you know, people like me or people like us who wouldn't have the money to bring this thing to life on its own, like a space to do that and an audience for it. Absolutely. And, you know, that audience, by bringing the audience and the creators together in such a close and direct relationship, I think that's a boon as well. I think it's good that, you know, I I feel like there's more awareness than ever about the creative process and like having a supportive culture Mm -hmm. for having people make art and having people enjoy it. One more thing I'll add is that it does bring money to the project. And I mean, that sounds obvious in a certain sense, but like the difference between Kickstarter and just, you know, making your own web page where you say, you know, fund my thing and you reach mm-hmm. out to all the same people and do the same marketing is that Kickstarter has a sort of storefront aspect to it. It has people who browse it looking for new projects. Mm-hmm. And it has, and you know, it's a good looking web page. It has a nice way of displaying your information. And, you know, you can look at the statistics of where the funding comes from. And in most of our projects, it's been about split down the middle of people that we brought in, in whatever way we could. And then people who Kickstarter brought in. I think that is something that has surprised me in some of our projects is looking at the data and seeing that, you know, a good number of people are just coming from browsing, using the Kickstarter search field or browsing Kickstarter categories or looking at the Kickstarter, like what's new page. And when people arrive at your Kickstarter page, if it's doing well, like if it is way past its funding percent or, uh, or just as a big number of backers or money that in itself becomes an advertisement for your game. It's like, it's like seeing that, uh, you know, 2000 people vouched for it. Which is sort of an interesting thing that Kickstarter does that I think is worth talking about. If not in this episode, then I feel like definitely in the next one, because it does have a little bit of this success curve that uh, can sometimes feel really unfair to backers when, you know, people, uh, people like being on the train that seems like it's headed straight for 500% over its funding goal town. Yeah. <laughs> like absolutely. everybody wants it's to be uh, on that train. It, it makes it so the winners win more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's capitalism. <laughs> that sure is. So do we want to get into some of the questions that people asked us about Kickstarter on Twitter? Absolutely. Let's do it. Great. So we asked in advance of this episode what your Kickstarter questions are, and uh, all of these came in through Twitter. So the first question is from Cole, and they asked, how do you build awareness for your campaign, especially as a smaller creator without a pre-existing following or a big audience? Evan? It's a really good question. Yeah. Is that like the most stereotypical thing to say after a question? It is, but it's also a good question. (laughs) It is really good though. It's, you know, it's the crux of doing a Kickstarter campaign is getting people to your page. Um, you know, three, three sort of paths come to mind. Paths is wrong because it implies that you, you have to choose one. Three strategies that you can all 
Ugh. I'm getting lost. <laughs> I think you were doing words. great. Great. Uh, I said, paths is wrong because it implies you have to choose one. You can take all of these paths at the same time. One of them is just reaching out to the people you know who support you because you're you. And that can be your family and your friends and the people you know and your Facebook and whatever. Uh, and, you know, that can be a stretch. They might not be your exact audience, but mm -hmm. sometimes they can help in other ways, right? They don't have to just back your thing. They could help spread the word. They could have recommendations of places to share it or friends that they want to share it with. You know, it's okay to ask them. It's it's an important thing you're doing. The next one I would say is the communities of people who play and make these games. And that can be online communities and real life communities. Online is, I don't know, Google Plus is gone. <laughs> we have yeah, well, it's also, I mean, it is also real life. Uh, I know that there's like this weird divide between, you know, the, the, people space, the, the in, in real life people space and the internet space. But um, yeah, I really don't like that term. Yeah. I, I don't know an alternative though. You know, IRL is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, Google plus is gone, but there's, you know, the, the gauntlet is like a, a role-playing game community that has forums. They run games all the time. Um, Itch.io mm -hmm. has its own forums that are becoming, I haven't used them yet, but they're becoming really active, I think, for some of these smaller role-playing games. And there's subreddits that have, uh, that are both specific to, say, role-playing games or board games, or might be specific to the topic that your game is about. If you're making it about the legal system, uh, there's law subreddits that you could post in and ask for <laughs> advice and raise awareness. And, you know, subreddits have rules for self-promotion, and you can just read those and follow them. You don't have to assume that you're not wanted, like I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's worth saying, I mean, it's like participate in the communities that feel good for you. And if it feels like a stretch, either because the social parts feel draining or because Reddit is a scary place, like don't find the things that work for you. And also with that said, uh, I know a lot of people who stay far away from Reddit because of its reputation, but we've had some really great experiences in some of the smaller subreddits there, you know, sharing mm -hmm. art for Noirlandia in the Noir subreddit, which is just a bunch of people who love Noir, who are like thirsty for noir art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was great. I said three things. What was the last one? Oh, shit. Oh, advertising. Sorry. That was the third I one. I cut you off mid-stream. No, I, cut my, I just lost my thought. <laughs> uh, advertising, though. That's number three. That one's tricky. And I think we have a question about that later, so we'll get into it in depth. But it's a real option to spend money to get your word out. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, I guess also there are two types of advertising. There is the type of advertising that's like self-promotional that you could do on Reddit or on Twitter, just talking about your thing and that's free. Uh, and then there is paid advertising. And I think we can get into that later. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get all into it. Um, with that, I also, like, I just want to say that I want to mention Itch.io again, because it's something that I feel like has just exploded in the space of smaller games recently. And also, 
uh, for people who don't have as big an audience, um, it's like feeling like a really good, really positive place for smaller, maybe more niche games. One thing that I've done is I just like if I hear about a creator, if a, you know, if somebody passes through my feed on Twitter, I just subscribe. Subscribe isn't the word. I follow them on Itch.io. And uh, if you make a devlog, just saying like, hey, I've added tables to this game or I've updated, you know, I fixed a spelling error. I get notified every time somebody updates their devlog. And it's actually been, I think, the most effective advertising I've seen for some of these games is just this constant reminder in my inbox in a way that I find kind of uh, pleasing (laughs) that like this person is working on their game that maybe eventually they're going to bring to Kickstarter. I think that's great advice. Get on itch.io. Yeah. Uh, And one more thing before we leave this question. When you talk about being a smaller creator without a pre-existing following, uh, the other important thing to do is to limit the scope of your first project uh, and don't don't make something that requires a massive following if you don't mm-hmm. have one. Mm-hmm. Part of what will get you that following an audience is making something and delivering it to the people who are interested. So uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this as a part of this company, but make little things. <laughs> Yeah, and I think probably for every point, there's a counterpoint. Um, But I think that, you know, that's generally sound advice. Okay, so Russell asks, what do I do if I'm bad at social media? I just can't keep up, and I don't think I have enough presence to effectively self-promote. Advert post, do I lean on my savvy friends, hire my savvy friends, Okay, Evan, so I'm going to ask you because you have said to me before that you think you're bad at social media. I do think I'm bad at social media. So what do you think? Well, <laughs> so the the social media that I think I'm bad at isn't actually all social media. You know, like I can't handle Facebook. Uh, I struggle with Twitter. And, you know... I've spent a lot of time trying to push through that and make the posts, spread the word, do what I can. And honestly, I think it's been with limited success. Like that those have been hard roads with few rewards. However, there's other kinds of social media that I think I actually am pretty good at. Like I think I'm pretty good at a Reddit post and, you know, writing up a little article or making an image album and then talking to people about it if they have questions. Like that works for me. And I have had some real success in that kind of work. So that said, well, let me start my so over. So where I'm at right now is feeling like, uh, like, don't push against the hardest, most difficult things, but maybe look for some alternative routes to the same end. If there's some kind of way that you can share your work or your process or your your images that feels good to you, maybe lean harder into that and try to make that one of your main approaches. 
Yeah. I think that what I would say is similar. You know, I've noticed that I have like these ebbs and flows with social media. Like I'll have this week where uh, everything that I tweet gets a lot of traction and I just like feel really on. And then I have these weeks where I don't feel like I have anything to say And it can be really stressful for me because I'm like, oh my God, in these three days that I don't have anything to say, I'm going to just fade away into uh, obscurity. And what I've found is that when I like try to push through and do all the social media on those days, like whatever I have to say kind of falls flat. And I like, I don't know why that happens, but then it makes me feel worse. And it creates this cycle of being like, I'm shit and this is shit. Um, So like I've tried to notice in myself those cycles more of like when I'm on and when I'm not. Um, And like going back to the itchio post or the, you know, the itchio comment from earlier, like sometimes what's been best for me recently, also just like in protecting my own mental health around, you know, what it feels like to constantly be connected and constantly be online is just like, making posts that sort of say the thing I'm doing factually without a lot of emotion behind it. Like say, you know, version 1.4 of Questlandia is up online, fixed weapons tables. That's not a thing I've said, but like, and (laughs) sometimes only we did, (laughs) only we did, but sometimes those, those weirdly land the best. I don't know if that's good advice. I don't know. That's totally good advice. You know, you're saying don't push it and post make posts that match the way you feel like if you have news say the news if you have a thought say a thought if you have a feeling say the feeling and if you don't feel funny or you don't think you're funny or i mean it's like find find your own voice and uh you know it's something that i'm still working on is like who i am online is by nature, like a little bit different than who I am in person. But like, I'm, I'm trying to find that crossroads where those two people meet and just like feel really good in that space and not try to be someone else. You know, there's a certain type of like language and joke and pace and humor that works really well on Twitter. And I don't think I'm somebody who's like captured that. And I'm trying to like learn to be okay with that. I'm, I'm probably not the best person to describe this aspect of it, but I do think social media has some inherent uh, challenges and sort of just like core ways that it can emotionally drain you or condition you to feel miserable. Because I think that social media is playing on just like a tribal aspect of human nature of am I liked, am I appreciated, am I a valuable member of this community? And constantly telling you, yes, you are, or no, you aren't, with every post and every reaction that you get. And it can be really draining to be in that space a lot. So I think it's important to just practice some social media hygiene. Like, (laughs) you know, how long a day you're going to be on it. And using the tools that it provides of like muting people or, you know, blocking certain kinds of content to, you know, just do a gut check of like what parts of this are 
either very useful to me or are emotionally boosting to me and what parts are making my days rough. <laughs> yeah, totally. We got another question from Matthew Gravelin asking, how done does the game have to be? How much do people need to see before backing? Uh, you want to take the first <laughs> response to this one, Hannah? Yeah. I know we touched on it a little bit in our general thoughts. Yeah. I mean, this is something that we are talking a lot about for Questlandia too. Uh, and I think we've, we have disagreed on it at, at points because for Questlandia 2 and sort of for my own like well-being around the project, I really want it to be like done. And at the same time, you know, we're in a position where we're going to sort of be running out of capital, where we're trying to make games our full-time living. And Evan, you have floated the idea of like, you know, we've done this podcast for over a year. We've played this game, we've play tested it a lot. Like there's, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be totally done as long as whatever the expectation is, we're setting it honestly. Uh, you know, there's a difference between saying this game is done. All that we need is to, all the art is done. Even we just have to flow it into InDesign. It's going to ship in eight weeks, which even then I don't think it would ship in eight weeks <laughs> um, uh, uh, no. versus, you know, like here's how done this is. This is going to ship next year. I don't think I've answered the question. <laughs> like I Well, you've described the two sides yeah, of it. Um I think the for me the question isn't about like I think both approaches are totally valid and it's more about setting the expectations in the campaign and for yourself. But I would do you want to say more about that, Evan? Yeah, I do. I have a few thoughts on it. So I think in general, having your game done ahead of time as much as possible is to your advantage in a couple ways. First of all, it means that you have a real or a close to real representation of your product that you can show to people. So that might look like actually having the art to share and actually having example of the text or a whole demo of the game that they can try. Uh, and that can be really helpful for convincing people that it's going to be real. They're actually going to get a product at the end of this, that the game is what they think it is. And, you know, also proving your concept. Mm -hmm. It also is advantageous because it means the backers don't have to follow along with your creation process. And creating a game is a bumpy ride as longtime listeners are aware. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of twists and turns and setbacks and, you know, it's just not a straight road. Yeah. And that can be tough to have exposed to many, many people and to have to say like, uh, we are going to scrap this idea and it might set us back months from what we promised. Yeah, that's and a great point. That, you know, that's, that's really rough compared to having a finished game and just having some timelines of, you know, this is when it'll get printed. This is when it'll get shipped. Mm -hmm. Not to say those things can't go wrong as well, but even when they do, it's not as emotionally tough to say our shipper lost a box of games than it is to say, I don't know if I'm feeling this game anymore. <laughs> I do think that there is a special type of emotional, uh, like creative emotional trauma 
in inviting people into your creative process after they've given you money. Uh, that like that relationship can be a really slippery slope. And I think it's something that a lot of creators uh, end up really struggling with. And it's hard to know how much to invite people into the creative process. And sometimes there's really, really great feedback that backers can end up can end up giving and really important feedback. And other times it, I think, just ends up kind of tearing a project to shreds when you feel like you have to answer to every single person's whim, you know, as if kind of as if they are your like investors, you know, like as if they hold a stock right, in your totally. game. Uh, but it's your thing. <laughs> Yeah, there's there are benefits to having uh, your backers being a part of the creative process and weighing in because you know they might have all sorts of good ideas and nice feedback and things to weigh. But it is tough. I have two more quick thoughts. Yeah. One, having your game more done is a privilege. You know, you you haven't gotten the funding yet. So where are you going to afford your rent and groceries and to buy the images and to do all the work of creating a thing? Well, it's it's just if you're in a good place, you might be able to afford that mm -hmm. one way or the other. Uh, or maybe you're taking a loan out from somewhere. But whatever it is, it, it's not a trivial thing to say it's to your benefit to have it more done beforehand. It's a little bit like saying, you know, you're more likely to win if you're winning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So don't feel overly pressured, but just be aware that it, you know, it, it will change the scope of your project and what you'll, what it'll look like to run it and what it'll look like for visitors to it mm -hmm. when it's more of an idea. And I want to mention that there is a, strategy and art here that isn't completing your game, but it isn't just being an idea person. And that's the art of the mock-up. Yes. The art of the pitch. The art of describing your game in terms of its finished form before it's actually done. And that takes work and it takes a clear head about what it's going to look like. Uh, and sometimes it takes special kinds of work to make a mock-up that is similar to what a final process will look like. And it has risks like when the creative road leads you astray from the mock-up that you promised. And when you're saying mock-up, it kind of sounds like to me, you're not just saying visual mock-up, but even like kind of the, maybe the blurb that you'd use to, the elevator pitch for every your game. single aspect, yeah. the pitch, the rules, the, the art, the physical products. Yeah. A mock-up all... can become a shock up if you pivot from oh. that original presentation. We need to make like <laughs> the kind of books that are on the counter at bookstores, <laughs> just like the, the like, 70 page impulse purchase like don't let your mock-up mock up or shock up, up. <laughs> <laughs> mark down 80 percent at barnes and noble yeah uh, i think yeah, we've actually made references to these as life goals before in previous episodes <laughs> <laughs> um so in reality you'll always be doing some of that 
some of the the mock-up of your finished product because there's always some distance between where you're at and where you will be and you want to give people an idea of it that's uh unfortunately nobody asked specifically about that part of the process so we won't be saying anything more about it about what part of the process oh the pitch the mock-up oh the mock-up uh i think that's for part two (laughs) i think we'll cover the shit out of that in part two of this episode (laughs) (laughs) all right next up we got a question from matt b who asks how small can you make a kickstarter does it have to be a spectacle to be successful what steps can you take to make it successful while keeping it small. Yeah. I think a Kickstarter can be so small. It can be <laughs> It can be tiny. microscopic. Like you can write the page in four point font. People need to hold a magnifying glass to their screen. You don't even need one backer. <laughs> I mean, so small is Small is an interesting concept because they're small in terms of like, I don't need a lot of money to fund this, or I don't expect a lot of money to fund this, or this game is, you know, or I want to fund this 10 page setting guide. So I feel like part of that is figuring out like what's small, what, what, what small is to you. (laughs) No, I think you're right. I mean, this question actually touches on a lot of things the idea of what does a what would you call a success for your project at what at what point does it cross that line and what is the thing that you want to make and how important are certain aspects of that is it really important that it's has high quality materials is it really important to you that it's played by thousands of people you know those questions are the limiters on how big or small you can make it. I want to use Damn the Man Save the Music, one of our other role-playing games, as an example here, because it was the third role-playing game that we brought to Kickstarter. And in my mind, I had set this expectation that like Questlandia funded at $6,000 and it was our first little project years ago when Kickstarter was still gaining traction. Then Noirlandia was, I don't know, like 20... 20,000 something dollars. And then I had had this like image in my mind of, uh, I don't know, the of the scale working differently. And damn, the man ended up barely breaking 20K. And it felt kind of bad at the time. Having put out the game now, like I think it's such a good small game. And I think that we were in the wrong mindset for that game. I don't know if that means, I I think it actually does mean there's things we would have done differently or I would have wanted to do differently with a Kickstarter. Um, But for me, doing a small Kickstarter means just sort of like reframing expectations away from the idea of a big Kickstarter. And I guess for me, what some of those expectations are with big Kickstarters are like stretch goals, which we can talk about later. Don't do stretch goals with a small Kickstarter. Or do you? I don't know. I know I don't want to tell people what to do. Um, I have all of this, you know, baggage around stretch goals. Um, 
maybe consider just running the Kickstarter for like a week if you're doing a zine and treat it sort of as like pre-orders. Uh, I mean, I think Kickstarter has this natural backing arc either way. And I think that that arc may happen in a week the way it happens in a month, but just with less burden to a person personally <laughs> on their time. Do you have other mm-hmm. thoughts, Evan? And I don't know, thoughts using Damn the Man or just in general? Well, here's the thing. You as a creator have complete control over having a very small project because your project is going to start at zero. So it's already very, very small. (laughs) And you get to decide, you know, how small am I finding acceptable? If I just get five backers from friends and then I make my zine and ship it to them, am I happy? Is that, is that where I would call it a success? So that's, a personal decision, right? Yeah. And I think it is good to be clear about where that that line is, to be clear about what you want out of it. Mm-hmm. The thing you can't prep for is how big it can become. You just can't control <sighs> the possibility that it takes off. And I, I mean that as a uh, an actual concern, because yeah. it is not just a straight up uh, sunshine and butterfly situation to have a big Kickstarter because it changes your processes mm-hmm. of what it takes to get it done. And it changes the amount of eyes on yeah. you. And maybe you have to hire people. And have you ever hired somebody? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it's a lot of questions and it's a lot of work and it's a whole different experience. Yeah. So you're always in a certain sense planning for these two possibilities of a sort of minimum viable success and your funding goal is a part of that, but also the possibility of a popular boom for your project and the feelings around that. Is that something you really desire? Uh, And the practical realities of it, like, are you prepared? to scale up even when you are trying to make a small thing. And I guess technically, you know, Kickstarter does let you cap rewards. So there probably is a way to force something as small as you want it. Uh, But who knows? Then maybe you're going to contend with the demands of the masses as they're breaking down your door after, you know, you've sold out of all 200 copies of your zine. They're going to start to go on eBay uh, for thing- thousands of dollars and you have no <laughs> control over that market value. You're like, I just wanted to make this thing for the people. I just wanted to like distribute horizontally this thing that I made that I'm releasing then for free to, you know, you just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. It's a very real danger. <laughs> so I guess my advice is like, do cap your rewards. When you're thinking about how small can you make your Kickstarter, think about how big are you willing to make it? And, you know, draw a line there, actually set a goal and try to keep it within there, have an upper limit. Because, you know, my answer would be, if you, if you want to make a Kickstarter for two people to back, that's great, you know, do it. <laughs> it's, there's, there, really, small Kickstarters are wonderful. And don't feel pressure to make something bigger than you want. All right. So I feel like this is a nice lead in to uh, another question from Matt Gravelin 
about uh, our thoughts on stretch goals and add-ons. Who I had kind of wanted for these answers to get like a little shorter over time and like a little more like, okay, yeah, we're just, we're just p- proceeding apace. Um, uh-huh. I've, I'm going to like tamp down my feelings about stretch goals. Maybe I'll cover add-ons because I like have no idea where I'm at with stretch goals right now. They are like a negative thing in my life. <laughs> I hate them. I think they bring (laughs) sadness and pain. And at the same time, I think that they're great for getting other people on board and paying other creators and involving other creators in your project and having people who are going to bat for you and talking about your work and they have a creative investment in it because they're excited. And I hate them so much. (laughs) (laughs) So Evan, what do you think about stretch goals? Uh, I dig them. (laughs) Uh, They (laughs) Um, (laughs) cool. Next next question. (laughs) Yeah, I think they're related to the last question about the size of your Kickstarter. They're um, a way to sort of make smaller totals okay where you have a sort of different product that you're offering if you make less money. And I do think of them in that way, sort of in reverse. Like the product that you want to make, your dream of how your thing looks, that's what the end of all the stretch goals should look like. So if it's, you know, gold inlays on a wooden board with famous designers all across the world designing your cards and art from them, whatever. If that's your vision, if that's your dream of it, and then you run the numbers and you say, okay, I need to make $40 million to afford it. That's a stretch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And in that regard, I think stretch goals make a lot of sense because I usually have dreams about what I want the things I make to look like and feel like and contain that aren't so rigid that if I didn't, you know, if I had to compromise on them, I wouldn't want to make it at all. Mm-hmm. Right. So to me, that makes perfect sense. It's a stretch goal. You know, I want there to be little tokens that look like bones. So if we can't afford it, if we only make this much money, but we'd still want to make the game at that cost, then okay. They're discs at this level and bones if we reach this much. Mm-hmm. I'm not into the Kickstarter stretch goal culture where it is like an expected thing and it's going to drive enthusiasm to your project and it's going to keep everybody engaged. And uh, I'm not convinced and how powerful stretch goals really are for that purpose. And I don't enjoy thinking of stretch goals with that purpose in mind. Like, what's something we could add to this game that would get people excited? Yeah. That that whole thought process, I feel like, is just almost guaranteed to result in you doing work you don't want to do. Yeah. I, I think it's that thought process that has, like, harmed us. I think it's harmed others. I think it's added stress without adding the value of the goal. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we've had it a lot of experience trying different stretch goals with the different Kickstarters. 
Most of the time, it feels like we've missed the mm -hmm. mark. Uh, and it pretty much falls down that divide that I mentioned, I think, where it's just, was the stretch goal a part of the game that we were wanting to make and excited for? Or was the stretch goal something that we were like, we got to have stretch goals. We can't just not have a stretch goal. We should have just not had a stretch goal in those situations. Yeah. <laughs> um, so add-ons, I think, are an a cool thing. And I'll only touch on them for a second. But, you know, there's this trend that I've seen, especially in board game Kickstarter recently, that I I think would be cool if it made its way over to more RPG Kickstarters. That is the single backer level or just two backer level Kickstarter. And then there are add-ons. So rather than creating all of these really complicated, like forcing your Kickstarter to like step up levels, you know, and try to come up with like that medium level of like, well, here, maybe we offer the t-shirt and here we offer the t-shirt and the poster. Like that's where I think we've really fucked up some of our levels. Um, offering add-ons in backer kit after the campaign, you know, backer kit does take a, a decent slice of money for the service that they offer. But I think, uh, you know, in the, after closing the good dog, bad zombie campaign, uh, we made over $20,000 extra in add-ons. That was really cool. Uh, yeah. and it also means, you know, it means people don't have to force themselves into a Kickstarter level that doesn't quite match what they want. If they're like, I do want these dice, but I don't care about the t-shirt. Yeah, I think that's right. I think add-ons are really great. Uh, with the same same caveats, caution. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't don't make an add-on because you think yeah, come you, up not with everybody needs a t-shirt. Uh, I mean, we had yeah, we had our t-shirts for Good Dog, Bad Zombie. Uh, they, it's like they did okay. <laughs> I, like I do mine. like it. It is yeah. like a great t-shirt. Uh, so actually, I don't regret that <laughs> one. But uh, there are visit our web store yeah. to learn more. <laughs> Hey, we only have a few left. So um, <laughs> I, I don't regret that one. But yeah, again, the if you feel the same pressure that your campaign has to have add-ons, uh, it doesn't. Next question from Lucian Khan. A question for successful game Kickstarterers. What are some tips for maintaining good boundaries and mental health? I think he asked the wrong question. <laughs> uh Okay, one thing that I will say is that it, the mental health part and the emotional parts do get easier over time the more you do it. I know maybe that's a little bit unfair to say. Maybe that's different. You know, maybe some people, things just bounce off of them from the beginning. When Questlandia first came out, like, and I'd see a bad review about it. Or I, I'd get a Google notification. Like, I think I like my hands would start shaking. <laughs> and now, like, I don't <laughs> care. Um, with that said, like, I think Kickstarter has some, like, dangerous toxicity issues. I think Kickstarter can be, like, an abusive place. And I think it can be, like, really scary for creators and I don't know exactly what it is about the platform that has created, like in some campaigns, like it creates like a monster 
you know, I still am in this position where when I see on my phone that there's a new comment on good dog, bad zombie, like my hands do still shake a little bit opening up that notification. And that is in a campaign where our backers have been pretty fucking amazing. Oh, yeah. But I get the same thing. It's like a you can feel it in your gut when you see somebody has sent a message about this. Kickstarter. Yeah. It's just like the the power of somebody being upset about the thing you made or how you're running it and being angry at you. Uh, you know, I, I believe that there are people who are less gentle than me, but for me, it just puts me through the ringer. It's so hard. It's <laughs> yeah. So we had, we had a really rough week when good dog, bad zombie actually landed in people's hands where a percentage of backers were really unhappy with the quality of the final product. You know, our game was printed by a worker-owned co-op, it was printed in the US, and there were a percentage of backers who thought it looked like shit. And there were some backers who asked for their money back. And for putting in so much work and for also putting in all this work to produce a game by these ethical standards that we had set for ourselves, like it was devastating. I mean, I don't want to like oversell it, but each one of us individually like went through, I like we went into the Black Lodge (laughs) (laughs) Um, and one thing that we did as a result after that was first we were just like, we got it. Like we have to bounce back from this because most people are either saying great things and they're thrilled or they're saying nothing, which we can only assume means that they're happy. And if not, they're being very respectful about their dissatisfaction. Um, and so like one thing that we did, we started a like a positivity channel in Slack where we say nice things. And when somebody says something good, we screenshot it and we share it to remind us that not everything is shit. Yeah, that's a good point. That channel has been key. I think it takes extra work to appreciate good comments. Like the negative comments, you're going to appreciate automatically. They'll go right to your soul. And live there forever. (laughs) The good ones will fade away unless you put in some time to preserve them and share them and think about them and like internalize them. And that is time well spent. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, Evan, I want to know your thoughts about this too. I think that one other thing that I'll say that I feel like I only realized uh, pretty recently is that the strategies for maintaining good boundaries and mental health in a Kickstarter, if you're somebody who already does those things in your life and you like know what works for you with self-care or you know what it is that triggers depression, um, like those strategies still apply. Like if it's taking space from your phone, uh, I don't have notifications. Like I've disabled Kickstarter notifications on my phone because I was getting a notification and opening it up immediately and feeling this need to immediately respond to negative comments. And I don't do that anymore. And it's great. (laughs) So like, if you know that it's healthy for you to take space from social media, if you know that it's healthy for you to schedule tweets or updates or social stuff in advance, you know, the same logic 
uh, and the same principles for what you're already doing in your life to give yourself a good and happy life, uh, still apply for Kickstarter, including like hydrating and taking your vitamins. <laughs> and I'd add um, talking with a friend to that yeah. list. If you have somebody who helps you work through tough times, whoever that is, uh, ask them if they'd be on board for helping you out with tough Kickstarter comments because those things can throw you for a loop. And I also just want to mention that it takes time to answer a negative comment and it can go through multiple drafts and we all have to work stuff out and, you know, really think about our response and like what parts of us are, you know, are we trying to lash back at this person? Are we taking too much of the blame on ourselves and being overly self-critical? Uh, it's important to take the time to try to work through those because uh, a lot of our first drafts would not have been great responses and could have led to things escalating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's important to remember that, that people have their own experiences of things. And if somebody has a negative experience of what you're making, that doesn't mean the thing is bad. It doesn't mean you're bad. It means this one interaction of, you know, your thing or your work and this person and their life and their views isn't working out. And that's actually okay. You can make it right. You can make a refund or you can explain to thinking or you can just say that that's not something that's solvable and this is how it's going to be done. And then that's, that's the situation. And I mean, not every, you know, not every interaction on Kickstarter is going to feel like day ruiningly terrible. <laughs> um, but often, yeah, there's like, there's this phenomenon that I've noticed a little bit on Kickstarter, and maybe this applies with other customer service stuff too, where um, sometimes backers who are unhappy, they don't just want to say the thing they're unhappy about and then like leave. Like they still want your thing and they want your time uh, and your like creative output and they they want to just like stick around. Like they don't want their money back. They want to stick around and yell at you. Um, and that's an abusive relationship. And uh, we've severed relationships by giving refunds. And after you give a refund, the person can no longer comment on the project. And sometimes that's a great thing to do. And I think that maybe some Kickstarter creators don't realize that that's like something you can do that like refund equals that backer no longer has access to your project. And that's great if you need to do that. Um, and sometimes giving that backer like a warning, like, hey, do you want a refund? And they're like, no, of course not. I just want to like stay here and take a dump in your comment section. And you're like, well, you can't do that because you're going to get a refund. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. That's been helpful, you know, to know that like we can remove ourselves from these abusive relationships and just give the person their money back. Uh, like they can't hold us hostage. Absolutely. Right. Right. Um, we've talked a lot about comments and I think that's because that's, uh, that's what's going on for us currently. That's, that's the stage we're in with our Kickstarter, but there are also our important boundaries 
to think about while the Kickstarter is running. Uh, that can be an intense time. Yes, yeah. The launch is intense. There's a huge rush of activity. The finale is intense for a similar reason. And then the middle portion, you know, everything that isn't the first or final five days of the project can be really tough when uh, there's a lot less attention being mm -hmm. paid to it. In every one of those cases, though, in every one of those times, I think it's just really important to look at your calendar and schedule times that you are going to not do anything with that Kickstarter. Yeah. You're going to be with friends. You're going to take walks. You're going to live <laughs> your life. You're going to not get notifications of when somebody new backs. You're going to not learn about comments or urgent questions. If it's super urgent, if there's like, if you're really worried, you're going to find somebody who can cover for you during that period. But it's so important to make that space where it's not the only thing driving your brain's chemical yeah. cycles. Good points all. So Jeff from Party of One podcast asked the great question, how do you handle Kickstarter updates when you don't have a lot to say? Particularly between the time when a game is funded and it's off to print, there isn't a lot to say, but I worry people will think I'm ghosting. So? My experience with Kickstarter updates has been uh, that people really like hearing what's going on, even if it's basically nothing. They like hearing you say hello, to share a picture, to to just say, I feel like I don't have a lot of news to report. <laughs> like they they like the opportunity to know what's happening and, and be included in that. And there aren't actually a lot of uh people tapping their watches and getting out their spreadsheets and measuring your progress and making sure everything is right on schedule. Uh they just want to be acknowledged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it seems, I mean, we've both worked uh, with other companies that have, I mean, whether it's our own work or working with other companies that have Kickstarters that have experienced delays. And it seems like the thing that keeps projects positive for the longest is just that constant, uh, that, that like frequent communication. Um, when people start to get anxious and more demanding of your time and when they do start getting out their spreadsheets is when it seems like a lot of time has passed. So the difference between saying like, here's the March update because I did a February update. So now it's time for the monthly update. Uh, you know, we're 70% done with editing. Uh, our, I was sick for a few weeks, so I'm two weeks behind with the art review, but everything is proceeding apace. This update is only a paragraph. Here is a picture of my dog. Uh, people really like that. Yeah. I, I think scaling down the idea of how substantial an update has to be is a really good approach to handling the situation because you should be updating. It is good to update. It'll It'll help the mood of the Kickstarter, of your backers. It'll make for better comments and happier people all around. Yeah. And you too. You won't have this thing eating at you where you're like, oh, I should make an update, but who knows what to say. And I say all that speaking as somebody who's terrible at 
scaling down that that the is terrible at scaling down the size of updates and i always build them up in my mind beforehand and i always have this internal thing of like if i don't have something to show if i don't have enough progress uh, i i just can't open my mouth and yeah it's just been proven wrong again and again if all i have to say is that uh you know i haven't had the chance to do any more work but i'm excited about it and i'm excited to have you guys along for the ride that's a good update mhm yeah and you know i mean updates are take a non trivial amount of time so any opportunity that you have to break up you know a 3000 word update is going to uh make your life uh, and the people who are reading it uh it's just good all around <laughs> Gonna make it better all around for yeah, everybody. That's a really good point. And we have some we have some internal yeah. disagreement about this at Make Big Things, uh, but I think that a short update is the right way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know that there's actually so much. Oh, of a we've got all out brawls. Um, <laughs> it's not something <laughs> in our positivity channel. I should say that. <laughs> I, well, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm overselling it. <laughs> There's just a difference between, you know, first drafts and uh, how the published update yes. ends up looking. Okay, so we have uh, only two more questions in the fulfillment and business side of the Kickstarter. Uh, and then we're done with your questions, but we were able to get to all of them. So let's just like, Evan, you want to just like plow through these? Let's do it. Let's start with this question Greg. from Greg. Asks, asks a really good question of who makes books. I want to know who to talk to about printed bound objects. Curious about labor and environmental ethics and standpoint. Uh, who makes books? When we started, I think there was like this list of companies going around that people have sort of worked with regularly. And I think that it can be good to start from there. And also, I think that some of the people who you'll see quoted the most often are a little bit expensive. At the same time, when you are uh, venturing away from that list, you're taking a risk. We work, I'm just going to say names. <laughs> uh, Do it. For smaller print runs, we like a thousand books or less. We print digitally uh, with a company that used to be called 360 Digital. Now they're called Whitlock. We like them because they are very communicative. They actually answer emails. <laughs> uh, that's a really good start yeah. for looking for a printer. Like, did your printer answer your email? Uh, that is really helpful. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so we really like Whitlock. And again, they're based out of the US. Uh, if you need to be printing a lot of books, that's when it's good to consider offset printing, which is a different type of printing process. They make what is offset? It's like more like they make kind of like a, a plate or an imprint, right? And then they're just like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> I should not start a podcast about right. printing I, uh, methods. I, I... <laughs> no. Okay. Let's go with that. So, yeah, Let's bah, go with bah, the bah, 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 bah. is the way offset printing works. Um, for that, we've printed with a company called Hewton Boston, which is located in Canada. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. they've been pretty good too pretty good with the communication. 
They they once put a moose they on our did. last page. We had sort of like a, a longstanding battle with them where they were really trying to insert somebody else's pictures of bison and moose into the copies, our final copies of Damn the Man. And it was surprisingly hard to resolve that issue. Well, they were just concerned that we... The they images did. I mean, it was resolution. really coming from a place of concern. They were like, hey, your moose is kind of low res. It's only like 72 pixels per inch. We recommend actually like 300 for printing. Yeah. And we were like, there's no moose in our book. And they were like, they're- <laughs> yeah, we're not going to provide a high res moose for you. We don't want a moose. <laughs> and they were like, well- then we'll just print it as it is. Uh, no, I guess that's how no it has moves. to go. No moose. <laughs> Even when we approved the proof, there was still a moose. And we were very nervous. <laughs> we were like, this proof is good. We were like, please don't send us a whole nother moose. proof. Just, just. And to this day, we don't know if they were joking or not. Um, so... <laughs> So they might have a great sense of humor. <laughs> so after that, you know, if you're printing board games, you know, like we printed with uh, community printers, they're about as like left as you can get. <laughs> um, they're located in Santa Cruz, California. I know that there are some other board game printers in the US, but, you know, ask around, see who people have used, and then like use your own instinct about their communications. Uh, and don't just email one person, like get a few quotes. Sometimes we're shocked. Like, you know, one company will be like $9 a book and the next company's like $3 a book. Yeah. It's worth shopping around for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and get, you know, a few different quotes at a few different, uh, you know, price Price breaks sometimes happen the more books you print, but you don't want to be saddled with copies of Dan the Man that are never going to sell. I don't know. <laughs> Just it's kind of a specific uh, you example. Know, but... It's like anybody could be saddled with copies of Dan the Man. Right. Like they, this could be anybody's basement that we're talking about here. <laughs> On the other hand, think big. <laughs> think Who big. Who knows when demand will, will bloom. So I don't know if it was the right choice to make our like final question about taxes, <laughs> but we'll, we'll probably do some sort of oh, like yeah. wrap up. <laughs> uh, Alex Flanagan asks taxes. How do you treat income from a Kickstarter? Is it all taxable part of it? If you aren't licensed as an LLC, do you get screwed over when it's time to file returns? I feel like I talked a lot in our last question. So do you want to talk about, taxes oven a little bit i do but uh, look you should get an accountant i don't know how taxes work <laughs> i got an accountant okay all right listen <laughs> i know i said i wasn't gonna take this one <laughs> It, yeah, they can be complicated. <laughs> we do. We have an accountant for make big things. It sucks to not be able to do your own taxes when they get this complicated. With that said, I think that some of the tax, the freelancer tax scare is like maybe a freelancer, like the sort of, you know, you as an independent business person tax scare, I think can be like a little bit overrated. You don't have to be an LLC. You can just be you. You can apply for an EIN, a business EIN, just as you, or you can use your social security number um, in the US when you file your taxes. The thing that has made our taxes better is just really good records keeping. Like when you buy pens, 
Like that's a good business expense. So keep your receipts. If you can put them in a spreadsheet, if you feel like paying for QuickBooks, uh, that does make it a lot easier because it's all sort of automated. Yeah. I mean, without, I guess we could give like a whole, (laughs) we could talk about taxes a lot and I'm not an accountant. Um, but the biggest thing we've had to be aware of is the calendar year impacting when taxes could potentially, uh, hit you. So like, say you make $12,000 from your Kickstarter, you did your Kickstarter in November, you don't plan on shipping and printing until after the new year, you know, until March or something, you are potentially liable for that extra $12,000. And I think that's where some people can get in trouble. So that's where, you know, you get into an accountant who can help you like defer that revenue for the future. That's the biggest thing. Um, But even if you are an LLC, like an LLC is not an organization that's technically allowed to hold its own money. And I may not be describing this well, but like that's actually something that I didn't, like I didn't know that when we all went into this. Uh, But an LLC is actually just kind of like, is kind of just a trumped up name for just like you and maybe a few other people who are partners in this bank account that is not allowed to hold any money i mean yeah yeah you you can you, you can, can have, have money, money. <laughs> but it, the, the way that the 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 way that it's regarded for your taxes is that that money belongs to the owners yes. of the company it's their income so if you have three owners and three thousand dollars for taxes it's like you each have a thousand dollars there there's no special business tax yeah bank account uh I mean, sorry, there might be a bank account, but no special no special tax for that money. It's the normal tax as if it was your income. Yeah, corporations and LLCs are taxed differently. So you as just like a person who ran a Kickstarter are going to be treated much more similarly to the way an LLC is treated. Uh, and that's just something to keep in mind. I feel like somebody's going to be like, you guys really shitted up this tax section. <laughs> Yeah, this is really making me feel the lack of notes <laughs> under this. I know, well, it was like the last question. We were like, oh, I don't know, taxes. Um, just keeping really good records and yeah, being aware of that like calendar year cycle and that even if you are only paying yourself a little bit or or not paying yourself at all, that you are potentially liable for money that is uh, left over at the end of the year or at the end of whenever you your business calendar year is. Oh, what a drag to end on this question. <laughs> Get an accountant. If you can't afford an accountant, Add that to yeah. the funding goal. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, and get an accountant who knows what Kickstarter is because a surprising number are like, and they don't. And that's, yeah. uh, it's its own thing that does complicate taxes. Yeah. Having them say that they understand Kickstarter is good. And then probably you still have to explain Kickstarter <laughs> to them. So that's it. But I feel like we should say something that's not about taxes. Uh what you want to talk about? I think Kickstarter is really good. I think it has changed my life and it is the source of my nightmares simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about a lot of the negatives of Kickstarter, but absolutely, I love living in a world that yeah. has Kickstarter. I love that I'm making this stuff. I love that it's made possible, you know, to have small successes, to send a game to a few hundred people 
and to let that be the beginning of a whole process and a whole line of work. So thank you, Kickstarter. Uh, you you terrible <laughs> thing, you. <laughs> you beautiful monster. So for our next episode, we'll be talking about specifically the Kickstarter for Questlandia 2 and what preparations we've done already, which ones are coming up, uh, and sort of our whole hopes and dreams of what it can be like. How big or small should it be? And will it have stretch goals? <laughs> we'll find out. All that and more. Um, so if you have thoughts or questions about running a role-playing game Kickstarter, you can't ask them because you missed your chance. <laughs> Keep it to yourselves. You know, write it in your journal. Uh, uh, fold it into a little paper boat and send it down the river. Um, no, I think feel free to still ask us and we'll try to answer, I don't know, on Twitter or whatever. Yeah, I'm sure that our answers only raised more questions. So feel free to throw those questions back at us. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not an accountant. I just play one on a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so you can tweet to us at designdocpod or you can email us at designdocpod at gmail. Yeah. Dot com. <laughs> Look, uh, there might be somebody who doesn't understand. No, how I think email it's important to work. not shorthand it. So thank you. The Design Doc intro outro theme was written by our friend, musician Pat King. Thanks, Pat. The Design Doc podcast is brought to you by the One Shot Podcast Network. One Shot has other great shows like Arms of the Tide. Arms of the Tide is an actual play podcast about fighting for what's right in an original magic technological world on the brink of catastrophe. Using the mutants in the night system, join Quinn, Joe, Chanel, and John and revel in the laughs and gasp at the drama while the only thing standing against the apocalypse are a robot with a fondness for stray cats, a wolf made of living plants with a bad case of depression, and a private eye who's so done with all of this. That cast sounds like it was generated by an AI. <laughs> and I will say, having listened to a little <laughs> bit of Arms of the Tide, Quinn has the most, like, like resonant voice. Like, Quinn's voice is just like, it's, it's just Ooh. like, Quinn has a podcasting voice. So I recommend um, both for the stories and the quality of the production, and also just like, if you just want to be, like, soothed. So we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. Thanks for we'll listening. We'll see you soon, heroes. heroes. <laughs> see you soon. <laughs>